Well, thanks, Tim. Thanks for doing that. It's great to see uh, people in the church. Uh, welcome for braving it out. I, I'm looking for the day we can get rid of these face masks so I can hopefully see your smiling faces. I can still see if you're engaged with your eyeballs, by the way. So uh, I, I am watching, and uh, it's great to have you joining us from home as well. Well, it hasn't been a good week for Scotland, has it? Especially for students. Uh, more lockdown restrictions as the government fears rise in coronavirus positive tests and a potential second wave of um, hospitalization and death. And so it's my privilege really to remind you of the hope of Jesus Christ, uh, to, to remind us of what good news we've got to share to a world that's still full of suffering, uh, disease, and death. And so please open your Bibles up to, to Mark chapter 8 if you closed them. We're going to walk through this passage together. It's well worth giving careful attention to this section today. Uh, it, it touches on so many personally relevant things. You know, how valuable is your life? How precious is an eternal soul? Uh, whose opinion uh, matters most in your life? Uh, how to respond to the greatest adventure of your life and an invitation to it? And how can we live with hope surrounded by threat and danger. Well, believe it or not, all those different topics are, are touched on in some way as we look at this part of Mark's gospel. But we first need to understand the good news about Jesus. Now, Rico Tice uh, helpfully summarized three major themes in Mark's gospel with these words, identity, mission, and call. And Mark lays out the life story on teachings of Jesus to help us understand uh, these three key things about Jesus. The identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? The mission of Jesus. Uh, why did he come? And the call of Jesus. Um, what does Jesus demand? And last week we saw how this section in Mark's gospel is, uh, is a pivotal one. Uh, the first half of Mark is building up to this understanding of the identity of Jesus. Uh, chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And once they give their answers, then turn to them. But what about you, he said? Who do you say I am? Well, we saw last week that despite much blindness to the evidence in front of their eyes, a great miracle happened. And Peter, finally I saw the identity of Jesus. You are the Messiah, he says. You're the king God promised. You're the one who's going to bring in God's everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will transform the world and transform people's lives. He's going to bring justice and righteousness and peace and freedom from oppression and relationship with God and blessing and life and salvation. This is the world that we've all longed for, a world that we're groaning for even now as we're facing further restrictions because of COVID. Um, you are that king, Peter says. You're, you're the one that the scriptures promised would come. But that was only the first part that his disciples needed to get. And so in 8 verse 31, he, it says this, he then began to teach them. I mean, Jesus was a brilliant teacher. He knew there was no point of going on to the next step of understanding until they got the first point. Uh, but having got the identity correct, 
Then he started teaching them about his mission. And that's what verses 31 to 33 covers. And then he goes on to his call in verses 34 and following. And today we're going to consider uh, these two points. Yes, he is the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah? Yes, he is the Messiah, but what kind of followers is this Messiah looking for? What does he want? So, two points then. So the first one then is what kind of Messiah? Have a look back at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. No more speaking in parables uh, to his disciples here. He spoke plainly to them about what must happen. This is the sort of Messiah that Jesus would be, a Messiah who must go to the cross. Now why? Why must he go the way of the cross? Well, there are lots of reasons, but let me just give you three. Firstly, because there were other people in charge of the nation, and they did not want to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Look at verse 31 again. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. The religious leaders at the time of Jesus, they saw him as a kind of a populist preacher who was challenging their spiritual authority and position in the nation. He was undermining their cherished traditions. Uh, and he was sort of blasphemy suggesting, blasphemously suggesting that he could forgive sins. And they, they weren't having it. Uh, very early on, they determined that the only thing they could do about him was to get him out of the way. The conflict and tension is building as you read through Mark's story. And uh, it doesn't get any easier when Jesus calls them religious hypocrites. Jesus knew it was only heading in one direction. They were determined to kill him. The second reason, because this was the plan uh, of God for the Messiah. The word must uh, in the original language has the sense that it's bound to happen. Because it is a plan and decree of God. All the way through the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the, the, the Jewish Bible, were these promises and prophecies that this was always God's plan. God had revealed it to them a long time before. Let me just give you uh, a few examples. In Genesis chapter 3, right at the very beginning, it contains the promise of God that the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God would one day be crushed by their offspring. But in that process, the serpent crusher himself would be struck. First Samuel. Think about the life of David. Uh, he's the anointed Messiah King who's foreshadowing the, the life of Jesus as the Messiah King. Initially experiencing rejection and persecution, always on the move because the rejected King Saul was still clinging to the throne of power as he refused to acknowledge that God had appointed David to rightfully uh, rule over his people. And so you see, many of the Psalms uh, that we've got in the Scriptures speak of a righteous king suffering. Most famously, Psalm 22, uh, which Jesus himself quotes from the cross. My God, my God. 
Why have you forsaken me? Now, when you read Psalm 22 alongside Mark chapter 15, which we'll get to uh, in due course, it is remarkable to see the correspondence. So many of the events around the cross of Jesus were all prophesied by David when he wrote this psalm over a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus. His hands and his feet pierced. Uh, That was the way that the Roman army publicly humiliated their enemies by nailing their naked bodies to a wooden cross, hoisting them in the air to die a most painful and agonizing and public death. David says in Psalm 22, they pierce my hands and my feet. Uh, them casting lots to decide who the soldiers would get to keep his clothes. And so the Psalms prophesy that the Messiah would suffer. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And then the great Old Testament prophets also prophesied this would happen. We read it earlier, Tim read it to us from Isaiah 53. The servant of the Lord would experience great suffering in order to pay the price for the sins and iniquities of his people. And uh, he was despised and rejected, we read. A man of suffering. He took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Zechariah spoke of God's shepherd king being struck down, that on one day the inhabitants of Jerusalem would look upon God who would be pierced, and they would mourn as for an only child. And on that day a fountain would be opened up that would bring cleansing from sin and impurity, written hundreds of years before the life of Jesus. Jesus knew he must suffer and be rejected, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again, for this is what the Scriptures had promised. This was the divine will and plan of God for the Messiah. Thirdly, he is the Messiah who must go to the cross because it's the only way that we can be saved. It's the only way that God's wrath and judgment against us for our sin can be put aside. It is the only way we can gain entrance into the glorious kingdom that Jesus was bringing. See, our greatest problem is that we're rebel sinners before a holy God. And our greatest need today is not a cure for coronavirus, but for forgiveness and pardon and restoration with God, a relationship with Him. Now, one of the most amazing truths that you'll find in the Bible, there are so many amazing truths, but one of the amazing truths we find is that before God even created the world and before humanity fell from grace into sin, God had a plan to bless and save people through his Messiah. You can read about this in Ephesians chapter 1. God had a plan of salvation before the creation of the world whereby rebel sinners would be redeemed by the bloody death of Jesus so that they could have their sins forgiven and experience the lavish grace of God in their lives. And Jesus knew that the Son of Man must suffer for our eternal salvation. For he was a threat to those in authority. It was the divine plan promised in the prophecies of Scriptures. And this is the only way 
we can be eternally saved. It's the only way we could enter into this transformed world that we all long for in the Messiah's kingdom. What lavish grace and mercy that Jesus was willing to go to the cross. How amazing is the love of God that it's displayed in his death of his one only son. This was the great mission of Jesus. The Messiah who must go to the cross to redeem sinners like us. The life of Jesus was profoundly cross-shaped. He knew it from the very beginning. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) It's an astonishing moment, isn't it? Peter wasn't tracking with this. This is not the sort of Messiah that he was expecting, that the people were expecting. I mean, there were lots of other Psalms that talk about how the Messiah would achieve the ultimate victory, that any enemies who dared stand against him would be crushed and broken. Um, And those are the verses that really got people's attention, uh, like Psalm 2. Uh, Israel was under foreign occupation by the Roman Empire, and many hoped that the coming of the Messiah would mean a political overthrow of, uh, of, the, uh, of the oppressing nation. So this talk of suffering, rejection, well, it all sounded a bit defeatist for Peter. This talk of dying, it's not good for morale amongst the troops, Jesus. It's not good for the followers. Um, I, I don't think you should be talking like that, Jesus. Can I just uh, discourage you from talking like that? And let's be honest... Our human understanding of what victory looks like is much more like a powerful Caesar uh, defeating his enemies with large armies around him. It looks much more like that, doesn't it, than someone being rejected and publicly crucified naked to a cross of wood. A horrific, bloody scene. This is winning? Really? This, the, this is the Son of God? Dying in a public spectacle of shame. This is, this is the Son of God? Well, Peter couldn't see it. And many today still do not see it. Paul the, the Apostle wrote, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. For the Millennium Celebration, uh, they built the Dome in London as a major exhibition inside of it. And there was a section on religion. And under Jesus it said this, Jesus was a good man who died tragically young. Now, what does that tell you about the people uh, responsible for that exhibition? They're spiritually blind. They, They just don't get it. They don't see it. Now, last Sunday, we began to examine... Um, about that surprising miracle that Jesus did, the healing of the blind man. And it's surprising because it's the only one that takes two stages. Uh, the first time Jesus touched his eyes and uh, he only recovered partial sight. I see people, they're like trees walking, he said. And then after a second touch, uh, then it says his eyes were opened, um, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now that miracle, I think, prefigures what is happening spiritually to Peter. Like the blind man, he partially sees the truth about Jesus. He's got the identity right. You are the Messiah. But he was blind to the mission of Jesus. What this Messiah had come to do. 
his blindness is seen by the fact he's taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. Yeah, you may be God's promised king, but let me tell you, you're wrong. What? And now this theme of blindness to the mission of Jesus runs right through the second half of Mark's gospel. It goes all the way up to the very crucifixion itself until we see one person who sees very clearly that Jesus is the Son of God. And who that is, is a most remarkable person. Uh, I won't let you know now. You can read ahead if you want, uh, but we'll come to it in due course. But the point is this, to understand who Jesus is and why he came requires God to do this miracle in our lives. A miracle of spiritual insight to see and understand the cross of Christ and to appropriate it for ourselves, as as Rachel was describing in her testimony a bit earlier. So Paul said this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The great moment of salvation is when you suddenly see this moment of death and humiliation of Christ is also the great moment of victory. Sin is paid for. Satan is defeated. And in his resurrection, death is no more to be feared. And when you see the glory of that, then the penny drops what it's all about. You realize this is the power of God. He must suffer in many ways be killed on the third day and uh, be killed and on the third day rise again. See, the cross is so essential for our eternal salvation that Jesus rebuked Peter before all the other disciples. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have uh, in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, the way that Peter's thinking in rebuking Jesus, it's worldly thinking. He's unwittingly become the mouthpiece of Satan himself trying to divert Jesus from his cross-shaped mission. So what kind of Messiah? Well, the Messiah who must go to the cross, who must suffer and then rise in glory. Secondly today, what kind of follower? Well, the kind of follower is the one who must take up their cross. Look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Notice it's an invitation to everyone. He calls the crowd along with his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple, he calls. If you want to know what a means to be a Christian. What's a a definition of being a Christian? Well, Jesus offers one right here. This is the only type of Christian that there actually is. It is the one who follows Jesus in the way that he commands here. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Now, what comes naturally to everyone? Uh, I would hazard it is this, being self-centered. We tend to base most of our decisions really around what's best for me, Um, what pleases me, what will serve me, what will make my life the most comfortable for me, what will make me the most happy, what will preserve 
me. That's our default position. That's our natural position. But to be a Christian, to be a genuine disciple of Jesus, is a daily discipline of denying that self-centeredness in order to be Jesus-centered in following him. You need to deny yourself. Take up your cross, he says. Now, this is truly a shocking statement by Jesus. Um, They regularly saw crucifixions uh, under the Roman Empire. This is how rebels were dealt with. This is how runaway slaves were dealt with. It was an appalling way to kill someone. It was a horrific scene. And to see a man carrying a cross was to see a dead man walking. He was walking to his execution. It was inevitable what would happen next. Uh, Nobody came back from crucifixion. No one survived crucifixion. Uh, You know, basically, the man carrying the cross has no further plans he could fulfill, no more life goals, uh, no personal bucket list to tick off, any ambitions are gone. To carry a cross is to say a man whose life is over and death is certain. And Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross. Jesus is calling us to live and die for him. To die to our own selfish way of living and to put the things God wants before what we want. Because we recognize that Jesus is the Messiah King. The call to follow Jesus as King means that we want to do his will over my preferences to put him first over my ambitions, to put him first over my popularity, to to be unashamed of publicly identifying with Christ even when it is costly, to put him first even over my life. I've got a friend who uh, is a pastor in India, and yesterday he posted a little video of a Christian woman surrounded Uh, by others in India being slapped and punched by the crowd because she refused their demand to spit on the Bible that she was carrying. Just kept slapping her and mocking her. You know, Christians are still being persecuted around the world and uh, even being martyred for their faith. Choosing not to escape death, but rather renouncing their faith in Jesus Christ. It's a radical call, isn't it, to deny self Take up the cross, but let's not forget the third bit, in order to follow Jesus. Yes, it's going to impact choices in our lives, you know, everyday choices, how we use our time, how we use our resources, how we pursue our career, how we conduct our relationships as we follow Jesus and put him first. But the point is we're going to walk through life with Jesus. The great thing about heeding this call is you get to go following Jesus, going through life with Jesus. I don't know whether you've uh, been watching this uh, TV show. You can only watch it on an app on your phone. It's called The Chosen. But it's a brilliant retelling of the life of Jesus. And it kind of just puts you there, imagining being there, seeing what Jesus did, seeing the, the, the disciples suddenly catch a huge amount of fish and pull out in the boat, see Jesus do these amazing things. What a thing to be able to go through life with this Jesus who's able to do incredible things to transform people's lives both for now and for all eternity. What a privilege to follow Jesus. I think it's the greatest adventure 
you could possibly have in your life. And so do you want to be one of the disciples of Jesus? Do you want to be a disciple? It's such a radical call, isn't it, of self-denial that actually you're probably feeling quite daunted. Even the Christians watching this are gulping at the thought of deny self, take up your cross. Is that what I signed up to? Let's be honest, we're thinking that, aren't we? Well, Jesus knows that, and so he gives three motivating reasons why this is a a great, strategically wise decision to make. Uh, Let me put them in three quick questions to you. Number one, do you want to save your life eternally? Look at verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So here's a question. How long do you want to preserve your life for? Um, You know, you've got one option, which is to desperately preserve a self-centered, Christless life for, well, 70, 80, 90 years. Some people make 100. You know, you could live a Christless, self-centered life for that length of time if you wanted to. Um, But to do that, you will lose your life eternally, forever, And you also might find along the way that a selfish life is ultimately a miserable life full of frustration. And the life to come will be one eternally of being outside the kingdom of God. Because if you reject King Jesus, uh, you say, I don't want want you to rule over my life, I don't want to be in your kingdom, then we'll find for all eternity that we're outside of his glorious kingdom outside of the place where there's fellowship and joy and peace and blessing forever. But to deny yourself and to take up the cross now and lose your self-centered life for Jesus Christ and for the sake of his gospel, we will find that our lives will be saved for all eternity in the kingdom of God. To follow this Messiah is to choose a life of a relationship with Jesus that starts now and will go on forever. Not even death gets in the way of it. That is the joy of it. That's why Christians actually don't fear death. Don't fear really coronavirus in the same way that perhaps people who don't have that hope fear it. So, do you want to save your life eternally? Secondly, do you, want to, do you, do you know the value of your soul? Look at verse 36. What good is it For someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Have you ever done the calculation of the value of your soul? You know, people do exchange their lives for all sorts of things, don't they? They can spend it all to try and get that promotion, to work their way up to the top of the organization, to get that important position in business to be the most successful business. Uh, People can spend their life, exchange their life, pursuing a relationship, pursuing power, um, getting wealth and toys. But you know what? If we pursue these at the expense of our relationship with God through Jesus the Messiah, then we will come to find that we have made the most terrible exchange ever We will leave this world as naked as we came into it. And we will leave all our possessions behind in death. 
and to be outside his kingdom is to be eternally in a place that Jesus describes as a place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I, 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 I can see three dentists on the front row. We know what gnashing of teeth looks like. An awful expression. That's what it is to be outside the kingdom. Gaining eternal life and losing the world is a much better exchange than gaining the world and losing your soul. Thirdly, whose approval are we seeking? Look at verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. To become a Christian is not the most popular thing you can do in the world. Let's be honest. Uh, to be a Christian might put us at odds with um, others, possibly workmates, friends, even at times uh, those in our family. They might just think we are strange, laugh at us. Uh, they may insult us. They may disown us. It's possible that some might even try to kill us. The question that we need to be clear on is this. Whose approval are we seeking? Are we seeking the approval of this generation that Jesus calls a spiritually adulterous and sinful generation? Or are we living for the approval of the Son of Man who will one day return in His Father's glory and usher in this eternal kingdom? If the approval of this generation is more important to us so that we're ashamed of Jesus and his words now, never wanting to publicly identify with Jesus, then on that day when he returns in glory, he'll be ashamed to identify with us. See, if we don't want to side with him publicly now, he will not side with us publicly then. He'll give us what we ask for. He'll not force himself on us. But if we are unashamed of Jesus Christ and his words now, he will be unashamed of us when he returns in his Father's glory with the holy angels, as it says. And there will be a lasting eternal reward of joy awaiting us on that day. Now these are three powerful motivating reasons to embrace Jesus and his radical call to be one of his disciples. See, when we understand his identity... That he is the Messiah, the Son of God. When we understand his mission, uh, that, one, that out of his great love and compassion, he chose the suffering of the cross to secure our place in his eternal kingdom, then we'll want to respond to the call of Christ to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. My friends, are you following Christ? Do you see that all who would be genuine followers of Jesus have cross-shaped lives? I think that was very interesting about Rachel's story, wasn't it? She, she got to a point where she acknowledged it was true, and yet it still wasn't changing her life. And then it became that moment where, actually, I need to embrace this Jesus and live for him in a more radical way. And that was the point where she really started the Christian life. Jesus called to the crowds. The offer is still here today. Will you follow Jesus? Will you follow Jesus?
Can I urge you to do it? To, to start following him if you've not started. To keep following him if you're following him. Do it for your own sake. Have pity on your own soul. Do it for the sake of others. That the gospel might be shared to more and more other people around the world who can then also know this hope. And do it for Christ's sake in response to the Messiah who suffered and died and rose for you. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.